then we're going to deal with the resurrection. Oh, what a beautiful day this is. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you for the reminder just moments ago that as we come together, as we study your word, as we even investigate our wandering hearts, they want to wander, don't they, Lord? We are prone to wander. We ask you now to tune our hearts to you. Lord, some may have a complaining spirit. Some may struggle with anger. Some may struggle with doubt. Lord, it's now where you begin to tune our hearts when we turn our attention to your all-sufficient word. It tunes our hearts to our Savior. And oh, what a Savior who beats death, the grave, assures our eternal life through the resurrection. Lord, this certainly of all things should tune our heart to the Lord. Father, we do pray for those who are at home still not able to meet with us for one reason or another. Lord, we pray that you would show mercy to them and kindness. We do ask, Lord, the ones that are able that you would bring them back to us soon. And they would enjoy the fellowship, the gathering, the great, the great institution of the church that gathers regularly for encouragement. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries. I'm so grateful for them. So thankful for their hard work during these times and difficult in their difficulties in their country. Lord, please bless them. Thank you for our opportunity to help in so many ways, Lord. So much money has been given this year to them, Lord. We pray that each and every dime goes to the furtherance of the gospel in one way or another. Lord, now be with us, Lord, as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 16, 1 through 8 is our text. John read that for us this morning. It is Mark's account of the resurrection. Now, the resurrection was not simply just some addendum onto the crucifixion. Sometimes the, the church can get really focused on the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is tremendous, right? It is finished. What, what an amazing thing that is. But the resurrection is truly the glorious centerpiece of divine, divine redemption. Do you understand that? We can have a cross, we can have a dead savior, but if he doesn't come out of that grave, we all go to hell. Do we see how important this resurrection is and how glorious it is to study it? This is the cornerstone of the gospel promise. It guarantees, now think about this, his resurrection guarantees that you will be in heaven if you're a true believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the death of our loved ones, we often give um, a eulogy or an epilogue of some sort to honor these people. You know what honored Christ? It was that God resurrected him from the dead. That is his epilogue. That is his, his great testimony of who he is. God raises him from the dead. He puts a stamp on the approval of his, of his propitiary work, right? That he satisfied the Father. And listen, it is the greatest day in all of history is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without it, we do not have anything. Without it, we waste our time here today. Do you realize that? We would just be another religious group. This is the greatest day in the life of a believer, the day the Lord Jesus came out of the grave. Now, it's such, there's such gratefulness for the cross um, that... Without it, there's, it's just meaningless. Look at, I just have to get to 1 Corinthians somehow, so I put it in my introduction. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because I want you to see how passionate Paul was about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
at the time of the resurrection, Paul was not a believer, was he? In fact, shortly after that, he's just a young man holding the coats while they're killing one of Christ's great disciples, Stephen, as he preached amazing sermon. But oh, did the resurrection start to grip the apostle Paul in every aspect of his ministry. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 20. He says this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testify against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for those who have died before us. What he says, verse 19. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If that's all we have a hope that he died, that we just have a dead Savior, we're to be pitied almost laughed at, right? But look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of all those who have fallen asleep. So what that first fruit means is he was the example. God raised him from the dead. He will raise us, our bodies, from the dead, knowing that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our souls immediately from the second we pass from this life are with the Lord, but he promises to come get our bodies. And if he raised Christ's body, he'll raise yours. And he'll give you a new one. And what a beautiful testimony to this. And so as I got thinking about 1 Corinthians 15, I thought, you know, the only reason why Good Friday is good is because Sunday was great. I mean, Good Friday, what would Good Friday be? Just eat fish and some, you know, clam chowder or something? Oh, no, it's Good Friday's good because Easter Sunday was great. And we have salvation. So the resurrection vindicated all of Christ's work on the cross. It satisfied the wrath of the Father. It isn't it beautiful that forgiveness of sins is just not promised, but it's proven. I love that. You don't have just a promise that your sins are forgiven. You have proof that it's forgiven. When God raised him from the dead, he proved he forgave your sins. What a blessing the resurrection is. Christ was raised and he'll raise us. And think about this, the power of death was beaten. The power of death was beaten. Hebrews chapter two tells us that Christ took death out of the hand of Satan. For all his life, for all his existence, Satan has held the power of death on the unredeemed. At the resurrection, he took it out of his hand. Remember the resurrection of Lazarus. What an amazing day was that. And there Christ, remember he introduces himself as the resurrection and the life. He introduces himself as the resurrection and life. At his own resurrection, he proves himself to be the resurrection and life. And so this is why we so proudly, humbly but proudly hold to this great doctrine of the resurrection. It, it is without a shadow of doubt that if you desire eternal life, if you want to go to heaven, it comes only through a resurrected son, not one who still hangs on a cross. 
It only comes through a resurrected son. There is no other way. And so as we look at this narrative of Jesus' resurrection this morning, this forms the great climax of the greatest story ever told. This is the climax. This is it. We think the cross because it is finished and we're so grateful for that. But the climax is when he comes out of that grave. It is the capstone of the Christian message. Don't ever share the gospel without the resurrection. It's a huge mistake. Because what people do is they go, okay, somehow I have to prove myself that I believe in this Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. No, no, him coming out of the grave was our proof. So always preach the resurrection because it is the good news. Well, the apostles just got lit up about the resurrection. Um, J. Vernon McGee in his commentary said this, every sermon in the books of Acts is a message on the resurrection. You can go back and look at it. Every speaker got to this subject, and the early church dwelt upon it constantly, he said. And when you go back and study all those sermons that are happening throughout the book of Acts, they will all include the resurrection. These men were lit. They knew, they knew that they had nothing without the resurrection. The gospel account of the resurrections are told with clarity, we'll see that today, with vivid detail, just like the earthly ministry and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And none of the gospel writers report all of the events. So it's, an easy, it's not an easy study. You have to look at all, for all record them. You have to open up all of them. And you have to kind of walk your way down to understand all the events that took place. We're going to look at Mark today and understand his. But it is an amazing thing how many people were involved with the resurrection and witnesses. So every Sunday is Easter Sunday. It really is. I know many of you forgot your Easter bonnets and your Easter clothes today, but every Sunday is Easter Sunday for us. And so I want to marvel again as we look at this account that death couldn't hold our Savior. His body began to breathe as we sing one in, one in one of our songs. And our eternal state becomes clearer and clearer. Our eternal state comes clearer and clearer when we look at the resurrection. So I hope and pray this morning that you'll worship continually that we have a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ resulting in a life honoring to him. Just don't come and say, oh yeah, I believe Jesus died and resurrected. Has it changed you? That's the proof that you understand those things. Look at, let's look at four thoughts this morning. One, let's look at the faithful woman and the honoring of the body of Christ. The faithful woman women and the honoring of the body of Christ. Look at verse one, Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Well, you remember that sat the Sabbath for the Jews was a day of inactivity. As soon as the body was placed into the tomb, both the men and women, we saw at the end of 15, both, both those men, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and these women went into inactivity. They headed home to observe the Sabbath. Now you know that the Sabbath starts on sundown on Friday and then ends at sunset on Saturday. However, most likely sundown on Saturday after the Sabbath was over, these women hurried off to get some spices. There was a time in the Jewish custom was once the sun went down, shops opened for a brief couple of hours so people could come get things they need and they could pick up a few quick sales. And most likely these women went and bought the rest of the things they needed, which were probably some aromatic oils and so forth, to 
take care of the body of Jesus Christ. Luke 23, 56 says that the women went home and prepared spices. So there's both them doing some at home and them going to get more, doubtlessly purchasing these very expensive things with their own monies. Now, these oils were prepared in a, in a mixture and, and they're poured out over the person and, and poured into the, the sleeves of the grave clothes and so forth. And the whole goal is to counteract the effects of human decay, right? They, and, and to hoard off the smell that comes with death. This was their goal. It was not embalming or mummifying. This, the Jews never used that custom. These ladies simply wanted to visit the grave of Jesus and use these aromatic spices to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a way that they could honor him even though they believed him to be dead. And they probably weren't so sure how well the women handled it. I mean, excuse me, how well the men handled it. So the women were coming to fix that. Now, first century tombs have been discovered uh, and when they open them up, they find... Uh, amazing amounts of perfume bottles, ointment jars, these clay uh, vessels that held um, a lot of these spices and aromatic oils. And what's fascinating is these women are returning to the tomb to perform this deed of honor and they, they have no expectation of the resurrection. They're, they're not talking about, well, maybe he was right that he would raise from the third day. There's no expectation. They knew the climate of Jerusalem. They knew how quickly a body would deteriorate. And now it's been two nights and a full day that Jesus has been in this stone tomb and these women are anxious. They want to get there before the body begins to decay. One other note here along this line is I've studied about these ladies. It's, it's quite clear that they must have been somewhat frustrated um, the men had taken the body off of Jesus off the cross. They got to do all the things that they re- really, they wanted to do. And they had to wait this, these two nights and this day as they faithfully respected the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy before they could honor the body of Christ. But Christ is truly dead. He's truly dead. And, and we talked about how skeptics might ask why are these women doing this I think they just loved Jesus (laughs) they did not have a full understanding of what was going on I think they simply love the Lord Jesus Christ and often people who love others are often prompted to do things that sometimes seem useless it was just love and their purpose is just unmistakable we want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ However, as the scene develops, <laughs> they get to the tomb and they're not going to need any of those spices. Look at the second thought. Number two, faith-driven actions in the messengers from God. Faith-driven actions in the messengers from God. Look at verse two with me. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Well, this would be Sunday, Nisan the 16th. And at least these three women would have left their 
residents, when we start to look at the full account, all four gospels, there may be more than these women, but the Bible here, Mark picks out these three women. They leave their residence, which is probably in Bethany, and they cross, they come around the Mount of Olives, they cross the Kindred Valley, and they work their way to a tomb not far from Golgotha. They knew exactly where the tomb was because they had watched, they were watching carefully where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus placed him. Now, here we get to the time amount that Jesus was in the tomb. Uh, I've dealt with a lot of people through the years who are adamant that Jesus must be in the tomb for a full 72 hours they, they'll get very adamant with you and try to justify their position that it has to be three full days because they believe that's what the Bible said. But I've many times said, well, have you read the text? Well, it says he'll rise three days. And I said, yes, this is what Jesus said. This is exactly what he said. He would rise, what, on the third day. See how people easily get confused with that. And so they try to put his death on Thursday and they, they do all these things that doesn't work in, in line with things. And so really he was, he, remember he was buried on Friday afternoon and think about what he did. First Peter chapter three tells us he went to hell and preached a sermon. First Peter three, 18 through 20, you gotta read that. Told those demons that were fallen from Noah's day, I beat you. And then he comes alive on Sunday morning And so in the Jewish calendar, it really was three days, but he arose just like he said on the third day. If you try to make him have 72 hours in there, he actually rises on the fourth day. (laughs) And so he keeps his word just as he said. Now, back to these ladies. John chapter 20, verse one, tells us that the women left while it was still dark. Now that's coming from Bethany. That's a little bit of a trip, um, a few miles out of town. And they arrived at the tomb shortly after sunrise. Now, remember, Sabbath ended sundown, so this was not, on Saturday, this was not breaking the law, but it was dangerous for women to be out at night. But they had a job they believed God wanted them to do. And you can see the scene, most likely the sun is rising just as they are meeting at the tomb and planning to do their work. They probably would have needed that sunlight as well. And one might ask, Shouldn't they have listened to Christ who repeatedly said, I will rise on the third day? Why are they so surprised at this? Well, you and I have the full narrative. And I think it's easy to criticize these uh, ladies' faith. But where were the male disciples? (laughs) Where were they? There was no one that heard Jesus was going to rise from the dead more than the twelve. Certainly Judas has committed suicide and is gone, but where are the eleven? Well, I believe that these women here love Jesus and they're extremely loyal, but they do not have the spirit of God yet. So the words of Christ are not being fully grasped yet. And and, and no fault of these women. Listen, they were at Calvary. They saw Jesus die. They followed Joseph and, and Nicodemus and saw where they laid the master and buried him. They're up early in the morning. They are constantly trying to be where Jesus is, even in death. See, faith in Christ at some level was driving these women. They wanted to be where Christ was, even in death. And meanwhile, where are the 11? Where are they? Doubtlessly, they're gripped by fear. They do not have the spirit of God either. 
They've seen Judas hang himself. They've watched their master crucified and die on a cross. Peter was severely questioned questioned whether he was with Jesus or had anything to do with Jesus. And when you add all this up, they felt they were next. And so without the Spirit of God, they were overcome with fear, but God was about ready to take the power of fear from Satan. Look at verse 3 with me. They were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away, this is the women speaking, from the entrance of the tomb? Who will roll this stone for us? Well, these ladies' love for Jesus was compelling them to minister to the body, but they had so many hurdles <laughs> to get over. This is a, it's so fun to watch them. Their love is driving them, although there's amazing hurdles. Joseph and Nicodemus had placed this large stone in front of the mouth, and it took at least two of them, and many people believe Nicodemus and Joseph uh, of Arimathea were probably wealthy men. They probably had some servants with them. This could have been a whole pile of guys to roll this stone, and here these three women have no idea how they're going to move this. Certainly, the tomb needed to be secured. There were grave robbers and animals, and so the Bible tells us that they rolled this tombstone in front of it. You know, John 19, verse 39, tells us that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus put over a hundred pounds of lotion and oils and this aromatic spices on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a lot. I, I read a little bit on the price with this. One writer said it would be worth a king's ransom. So this stone was not easily moved. Grave robbers would be known to go in there in any way they could. So however they could, they would try to get these precious oils. They were so valuable and resell them. And there's a hundred pounds upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these women um, are coming up against some obstacles. Furthermore, they have no idea what Pilate has done. Look at Matthew chapter 27 with me. They're just, by faith, headed for the tomb to see how they can honor the body of Christ. And they don't have any clue how they're going to move the stone. And notice what Matthew 27, verse 62 says. This is another obstacle. Now, the next day, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember when he was still alive that the deceiver said, after three days, I am going to rise again. Isn't it interesting? Those who hate Christ, remember he's going to rise from three days. Those who love him can't remember it. Now look at, look at verse 64. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure along with the guards and set a seal on the stone. Now, here's these three lovely ladies, at least that we know of in Mark. They are on their way to a tomb. They're not sure how they're just going to even move the stone. They have no idea that this has gone on, that there's now Roman soldiers they're going to have to deal with. And the tomb is sealed. And so that if anybody breaks that seal, it'll be known. These ladies just love their Lord. And though they are 
unknowing of these concerns, they make their way towards the body of Christ. Look at verse four back in Mark 16. I love this one. Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Well, looking up is what we call a dramatic present tense. It it gives, it implies that their, their eyes were downcast. There was great anxiety and a trepidation of, of what we're going to do. They're, they're overwhelmed. And if you find somebody who's very overwhelmed, they most of the time look down. If you find somebody who's hurting over a situation or going through a very difficult process, often when you speak to them, they even will put their heads down. This is what's happening. They're overwhelmed with thinking, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And notice the Bible says, looking up. Looking up. And all their known and unknown concerns fled away like the night sky. The tomb was open. Notice the verb rolled away there. It carries a tense that the stone had been removed and would continue to be removed. It's, it's an interesting tense that's used there. This stone wasn't going back. And I think that is a lot of application there. And in fact, the tomb now stands open, almost inviting these ladies Come in, come in. Can you imagine their jaws and look at one another? They've had such great consternation over this. How are we going to do this? And there it is, open. And look, don't miss this. Don't miss this point. The stone was rolled back not to let the risen Christ out, but to let people in. He didn't need the stone rolled back to escape death and Satan and all those things. That tomb's open for people. It's still open for us to see that our Lord is raised from the dead. Mark does not give details of how the stone rolled back, but Matthew does. Look at the, listen to Matthew uh, 28, 2 through 4. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone Uh, rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes like white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Well, that's how it got back. (laughs) The angel of the Lord from 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 the heaven above came, descended from heaven, from the presence of God, and rolled this tomb back. And notice the, the description of this, this stone, extremely large, verse four says. It implies that the stone um, maybe covered a, a bigger entrance than we understand. They're, they're often in these very wealthy tombs that they find. There was a vestibule. Uh, a vestibule was an entrance, a, a, an area where you come, came in and family could gather there and they could honor the dead. This was a huge, uh, more than probably what we can put our mind around, how big this tomb was. And these ladies enter this. Look at verse five. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. As a woman, probably minus Mary Magdalene at this point. If you study all of them, Mary, Mary flees and heads back at this point. But probably minus Mary Magdalene, they enter into this. And there's a reason why I'm going to get into it when we talk about the last part of Mark 16, which is an interesting thing I'll explain. We don't believe it's in the original, the original text, but there's some good thoughts in there we're going to look at. Mary Magdalene had seen that the, stone was em- uh, uh, the tomb was empty, and she turned and left. And then she comes back, sees another angel that says, why are you weeping? And then she turns around and meets Jesus. So I think she's gone at this point. But look, these ladies were surprised to meet this young man there sitting right in front of them. 
Matthew and Mark only mention one angel. Luke, mentions, Luke and John mention two, but often just the speaker is often mentioned in, in the Bible, and so we don't always see both persons. Matthew uh, 28, 5 says, The angel, singular, said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who had been crucified. Now, as for the doubters who reject the angelic presence here, Matthew says that his his appearance was like lightning. Now, you can't mistake lightning for something else. When you read these guys who just hate Christ and hate the Bible and all that stuff, they're just doubters, right? They just come in, they're skeptics. Well, was this really an angel? I don't know how you make somebody look like lightning. I mean, what a description. We live in Florida, the lightning capital of the world, right? I mean, when one hits around your house, you know it, don't you? Because usually your power goes out. Oh, what's wrong with the TV? <laughs> it's a flash. And, 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 and if you've ever been close enough to lightning, and I've been very close, too close at times, especially cowboy out in the middle of nowhere, um, oh my goodness, you'll be blind for a moment. This is powerful. His clothes were as white as snow. This is third world. This is, this is ancient world. They did not have Whirlpool and GE and and Clorox and everything else you would use to make something white. This, this, is, this is something that's come from God. Roman guards who have been in through war shook for fear of him, the Bible says, and became like dead men. I'm not sure what happened there, but I'm glad it wasn't them. It scared them almost to death. These were no teeny boppers running around in a white nightgown, as some profess. These are angels sent from the presence of God. These angels came from the sight of God. They're, they're, they're not shining white like lightning because they're holy, although they are absent of sin or thus they wouldn't have been the elect angels. But they're coming because they're reflecting the presence of God. That's what the lightning's about. <laughs> and these, listen, think about these angels. They sang and rejoiced at creation. They knew the plan of God in Genesis 3 was to send his own son who would die for these sinful men, these sinful beings that had rejected Jesus, rejected God. They watched that. They proclaimed the good tidings of his birth. They destroyed thousands of enemies of of Israelites. They are ready, Psalms 103, they're ready to obey at the voice of God. They love God to proclaim his holiness, Isaiah 6. These are what the Bible calls the elect angels. And they are not some other figment of the imagination of these ladies. Third thought, the resurrection message of life and death. Look at verse six with me. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen, he is not here, behold, Here is the place where they laid him. Notice it says, do not be amazed. Luke says that the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. I think these expressions clarify the awe and distress these women fell in in the presence of these angels. The heiress tense tells us that they were gripped and overwhelmed with with a mixture of wonder and fear. Wonder and fear, I don't know if I could describe that. If I've, I, when I came to know Christ, there was wonder and fear of a holy God, but this is an astounding event, isn't it? But notice the angels 
understood their feelings and they said, look, do not be amazed. Matthew 28, five says, do not be afraid. So I think both of these are saying, don't be amazed, don't be afraid. Let us tell you what's going on. And then the angel says, you're looking for Jesus and Nazarene, the one who's crucified. See, the angel knew the purpose of their coming. We know, we've been sent, we've been told, these, you are gonna show up at the tomb, we're here to give you a message. We're obeying God the Father. He has sent us, we know why you're here, we know the purpose of your coming. See, the word order stresses that their search was centered on a specific person. Notice they're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. So the angel understood the humanity of Jesus Christ. He understood that Jesus added deity to his, to, uh, added humanity to his deity, and they call him Jesus the Nazarene because that's what they would have understood. Isn't that interesting? And then second, the angels portray extreme, the extreme humiliation that Jesus went through, this voluntary suffering that he submitted. They clearly are clearly aware that Jesus was crucified. Now, isn't that interesting? They seem to be firsthand witnesses that Jesus Christ was crucified. And it tells us that all of heaven was looking on as our Lord suffered on the cross. And notice the angels knew that the women were first-hand witnesses. You can see that in the text. Do not be amazed. You are looking for the Nazarene who has been crucified. We know you were watching. We know you watched him die. We, you watched him be buried. And we knew you were coming to find him in the tomb, but he is not here. He is not here. I think two of the greatest phrases, one is that it is finished, and the second, he is written. What, what two better phrases can we as Christians have? It's done, don't add anything to it, it's complete. God's completely um, been vindicated of his wrath. He, he is totally satisfied with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he put a stamp of approval on it and is risen. What great terms. So I think this announcement was a glorious fact spoken to them in his past tense, this is done, he is risen, the deal is done, his resurrection has been explained by that there is no body here. There's no body, and remember what Luke chapter 24, five says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? I love that phrase. <laughs> Can you imagine the angel saying that to the ladies? Why are you looking for those who are alive in a dead place? You're not going to find living people here. You find dead people here. They're making a point. He's not here. He's alive. What a statement. John chapter 20, verse 6 through 7. John's eyewitness account says when he and Peter went into the tomb that the linen wrappings were lying there. Remember, they, they were showing the women where he was. And the faith cloth, which had been around his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And, and so we see that the resurrected body had passed through these grave clothes, leaving them in the same state in which they had been wrapped around the body of Christ. And he just came out of them, and they're just laying there. And the angels are going, look, this is where he used to be. This is where dead people live. Here's, here's where he used to be. He's not here. He's alive. The fact that the women were the first to receive this announcement of the resurrection is significant. See, Jewish law at this time, Jewish law said that women were ineligible as witnesses. They, they couldn't use them in the testimony of a court of law. And history tells us that the Jewish leaders denounced these women's testimony. But God loves, you heard me say this how many times, God loves to use who? Nobody's. 
He loves to use nobodies. He loves to use people who look, I'm, I'm just here to honor Jesus. I'm not prominent, I don't have much, but I just wanna honor him. I wanna give what I have to the Lord, and he loves to use that. And so these women become firsthand, the first firsthand witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, the early church, when you study it, no amount of social pressure nor courts could persuade these women that Jesus was not alive. And furthermore, if these women were looked upon so poorly, isn't it interesting that that's actually proof? <laughs> they tried to dismiss them. In fact, Josephus says many of them were killed. Um, they, she doesn't give names, but these people just disappeared. We're going to try to understand what it meant to have poisons and snakes in the end of, in the end of Mark. I'm going to help you understand that scribal edition that's on there because they saw every way to kill these people with poisons and snakes. It's not about having a, you know, a church in the backwoods of Tennessee and handling snakes. That's not what Mark 16 is about. It's about something greater that God protects these people. Now, look at verse seven. Notice what the angel tells them. But go tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, notice the angels told the women that they're first-hand witnesses of the resurrection, but, but and he kind of grabs them with this adversive conjunction here and kind of snap them out of their awe and wonder, I have a task for you. You now have knowledge. You've seen where he laid. He's not here. We are telling you. So this is a call to action. Go tell, go tell, go tell he is alive. I love that phrase. I wish we would do that more. Mark, is the only one that records to go tell Peter, and I think this is why. I think Peter is singled out, not only for his prominence, but because of a message of insurance to him. Remember, Peter had denied the Lord Jesus Christ vehemently three times. And isn't it amazing how Jesus seeks to encourage Peter? Even while he was doubtlessly in great remorse, the Bible says when Peter denied the Lord, he went out and wept bitterly. He didn't hang himself. He just realized the gravity of his sin. That's a big difference, isn't it? And so, so obviously, <laughs> the Lord always conf, conf, uh, uh, comforts those who repent. He doesn't punish those who repent. He comforts. And so he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. And only Mark records this, and I think there's a reason why. Because Mark records much of Peter's sermons, and Peter must have been talking about this, saying, the Lord mentioned be my, my name, and let me tell you why, because I was the one that denied him. And, and the Lord sought to restore me. Not only at this point, but later in John 3, he restored me for the three times I denied him. And I think Mark hears Peter talking about this, and he records it. Now, I love the grace of Christ. See, it's always on display. And, and here, this is grace. He, he's not giving what is deserved, right? You and I experience this grace constantly. Peter is receiving grace. You may tell the disciples, and you make sure Peter knows this. You make sure Peter knows. And you tell him to be in Galilee. I got something unique for him. And of course, that's talking about the shores of Galilee that you see in John 21. Now, this little phrase here at the end of seven, he says, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. 
Maybe that conjured up a few things in their mind. They go, oh, that's right. We were done with the Passover. We sang a hymn. We went out. We crossed the Kindred Valley. We went up into the Mount of Olives. We fell asleep a couple of times. But didn't he say something about raising from the dead there? Well, that's exactly what he said. Mark chapter 14, verse 28. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. <laughs> that's exactly what he told them. After I've been raised... What was that? I'm still trying to get the sleepy dust out of my eyes. I can't stay awake. And they missed this great truth. In their confusion and sorrow, they had forgotten about this promise. And we know that their lack of faith caused them not to go to Galilee, but where'd they go? Right back to the tomb, didn't they? And, and understandably, think about this. We thought he was a Messiah. We thought he was going to Jerusalem. We followed him there. We thought he was going to be king. But all of a sudden, he's arrested. He's mocked and beat and crucified and killed. And now they're saying he's not there? Guess where Peter and John went to? They took off for the tomb. And John handles this. And the race is on, right? And John, in his very gracious way, says he outruns Peter. And they get to the tomb and... And John stops at the tomb, right? You remember this? And Peter just runs right by him and runs right into the tomb because everything in his life is resting on the fact that that Savior is true. He's not there. And he runs right by John and goes into the tomb. Wow, what an amazing event. Look at verse eight with me. They went out and fled from the tomb. This is the ladies again. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them. I love the terminology here. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Well, they went out and fled from the tomb, the text says. It's the immediate reaction of these women. And understandably so, they fled in in a confusion of excitement, right? Look at the terms, trembling and astonishment had gripped them. What a descriptive um, emotional state they were in. I, I, I don't know that you and I could get our mind around this. But these three according to the world, according to the Jews, insignificant women experienced. An empty tomb, angels. See, the verbs mark their continual excitement, causing their bodies to tremble. When's the last time your body trembled? I think when I got up this morning. But, I mean, think about it. They're, they're trembling. They're so excited they're so, they're so overwhelmed that their body is shaking. They can't hold still, and yet they say nothing to one another. Joy was, must have just swept across their souls as they hurried to the disciples. Matthew 28, 8 says this, and they left the tomb quickly with fear, and then this word, and great joy. And they didn't walk. The Bible says they ran to report to the disciples. Trembling, running to tell the disciples what had been told to them. And notice it says they said, to no, said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This statement stresses the stunning, breathtaking events and unexpectedly that they encountered here. And, and there's a reverential awe at these events and the messages given to them and they're told to go tell and this awesome message they're carrying but they dare not tell anyone but the disciples. They knew the vengeance of the Pharisees. They knew how they, people hated God and hated Christ and would kill him. And so they don't tell anybody, and they beeline for the disciples. And see, look, they're carrying both, both a message of life and death in a lot of sense. 
life to all of us for 2,000 years who would put our faith by the grace and sovereign work, grace and sovereign work of God in our lives. We put our faith in a resurrected Savior and it's death to those who don't. What a message. This is the separation of the sheep and goats message. This is of those who know him and those who don't. This message is full of life and death, isn't it? This is the one who will stand before all with nail prints in his hands and his feet and will separate them like sheep and goats. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess this is a tremendous message they carry. Fourth, and more of a point of application, the resurrection and our assurance of eternal life. Jesus goes on to appear to Mary Magdalene. He appears to other women, the Bible says. He appears to Peter. He appears to two disciples on the Emmaus Road. He appears to 10 disciples in the upper room. Then he appears to 11, including Thomas, eight days later, which would be back on a Sunday again. Then Jesus came to Galilee. He appears to the disciples on the shores of the lake, restores Peter. Later, he appears to 50 disciples on a mountain, probably Mount of Transfiguration, where he commissions the apostles to take the gospel to the end of the to the ends of the earth. Then at some point he appears to his half-brother James and finally appears to the 11 apostles on the Mount of Olives as he's ascending to heaven. Acts 1, 2 through 3 records it this way. He said to those, um, Luke recorded this, to these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The Old Testament had a law. You had to have a witness of two or three. The New Testament shows hundreds and hundreds of people who saw our Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead and had face-to-face encounters with him. So the reality of the resurrection affirmed by the eyewitnesses, the empty tomb, the angels, the diversity of people, all prove that Jesus was who he said he is and did what he said he did. But still, it takes a God-given faith to believe, doesn't it? Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Do you believe that he sits at the right hand of the Father waiting to make his enemies his footstool? Do you believe? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You cannot believe in a Jesus who simply is left on a cross that is preposterous. He must empty himself out of that grave. He must have victory over death. That is who we believe in. And that is how you're saved. And that's supernatural. That's why every salvation, everyone in this room or those who are watching Every one of us who truly know that God has saved us, we experience the supernatural work of God when he plunged faith into you to believe in a resurrected Savior. And that's our life. Listen, God-given faith goes far beyond intellectual faith. There are some say, just show me the facts and I'll believe. And of course, the Bible's never good enough for them. They have to go further. But look, when your heart is gripped and your soul is gripped with a love of Christ and you're willing to submit to the sovereign acts of God in your life, that that tells you that you know he's a risen savior. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.15 as we just wrap this up. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Hmm. 
Here's the mark of Christianity. He died for us. We live for him. Not he died for us. I live for me. That's not Christianity. He died for us. We live for him. And notice how this ends, or just listen to this. But for him who died and rose again, then listen to this little prepositional phrase, on our behalf. See, that's what motivates us, doesn't it? We have a savior that beat death for us. And for those who believe the fear of death is gone, our glorious hope of assurance is in a resurrected savior. He conquered the grave and the same promise is for us as well. You will conquer the grave. You'll conquer death. The second death will have no hold on you, the book of Hebrews says. If by faith alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to conclude with a statement I read in several commentaries on this passage. It was a quote by Martin Lord Jones on Easter Sunday many, many years ago. And I just want to read this and then we'll close with a benediction. This morning, this is Martin speaking, this morning, this morning I look over this evil and sinful world. It does not impress me because I expect nothing better from it. Whatever may be going on against me, whatever is happening in my own body, this is what I expect because of sin. But though I shall die, I shall rise again. I shall see him, Christ, face to face. I shall see him as he is, and I shall be like him, and like him in a body glorified, with every power renewed. And I shall be living in a realm that is incorruptible and undefiled, a realm that can, be never, that can never fade away. This is the living hope of the resurrection and the hope which is absolutely safe and secure. The resurrection itself guarantees it all. Every enemy has been destroyed. Christ has conquered them, every one of them. Christ is our forerunner. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And he will come again to receive us unto himself. And we shall reign with him as kings and priests. And we shall judge the world. We shall even judge angels. That is Christ's guarantee. And nothing can stop it. Can death? Of course not. For he has already conquered death. Can the devil? No. Christ has vanquished the devil. Can hell? No. No. Oh, no death. Where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God which giveth Victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) What a great sermon and what a great truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. What a joy we've had through the book of Mark. We've watched this perfect life of Christ. We've marveled at his earthly ministry. We've marveled for his care of those who were so poorly treated gathering men of all walks of life to follow him, women following him and caring for his individual needs, Lord. And then all coming to a head at his crucifixion and there mocked and beaten and then crucified because of our sins, Lord. But yet we find the capstone as he comes out of the grave. This is the capstone of the greatest message ever told. Our sins are forgiven. And it's been proven. The Father's wrath appeased. 
There is nothing left to be done. We do not add our good works in order to gain salvation. We simply believe, Lord. And that God-given faith drives us to be here this morning. To read our Bibles. To live as citizens in this dark world as lights, Lord. And so, Father, we ask that we would not simply just look at the resurrection and think how wonderful that is. But Father, may it impact us every day of our life. Jesus beat death for us so we can live for him. Lord, thank you for this message. I'm so encouraged to study this. Lord, thank you for the privilege of studying your word and teaching it to my dear brothers and sisters. Lord, may we not be just hearers only, but doers. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, there'll be an elder down front here. If you need to speak to somebody, please don't leave. Make sure you talk to somebody. If you have some doubts or struggles or you want someone to pray with you, would you stand with me for a closing benediction? I enjoy writing these. I hope you enjoy listening to them. Father, we ask that you bless us, not for worldly purposes, but that your glory may be seen in us as a testimony of your grace. May you cause your light to shine upon us, not because we live in, a, in darkness any longer, but because we desire to show the light of your glory in this dark world. May the resurrection of your son cause us daily to die to self and to live for him. And may the resurrection cause us to live like truly forgiven people, those who have experienced the greatest victory of all. Amen?